0: what's going on everyone yes to those of you that were uh, hanging out in the room with us I'll come to some uh rest in peace he was uh was killed earlier this week in punjab um definitely lost a uh
1: great member of the community like he's kind of like
0: a you know bit of a revolutionary kind of fought for the rights of uh of punjabis in punjab because we are a bit mistreated out there um but Nevertheless, uh, great music. Definitely check him out, Sibu uh, he's dope. One of my, one of my favorite pandemic rappers. Uh, that being said, y'all, thank you so much for being here. It is Friday, June 3rd, 2022. Uh, we're back with Artist Day Science Happy Hour number 84. Damn, 84 weeks of this stuff, man. That shit is crazy. We've been, we've been doing this uh, for quite some time. Thank y'all for tuning in. Thank y'all for doing it. Um, I hope you get a chance to tune into the episode that was released in the podcast today. I did an episode with uh, Jeremy Adamson. And we talked about uh, his book, uh, which was pretty much centered around the the theme of how to, how to build and lead data science teams. Definitely, definitely recommend that book, especially if you're uh, looking to get into a leadership position or maybe you've recently found yourself in a leadership position. This is an episode that you do not want to miss. Uh, also, last week's episode was with none other than uh nick singh we talked about his book how to ace the data science interview so if you are in the interview process if you're currently interviewing definitely check that it, that put out uh, i gave him a little bit of a uh, uh i gave him my pitch like kind of my like telling me you about yourself in that interview and he broke it down and deconstructed it and told me what i was doing right what i was doing wrong it was great so definitely check out that interview i think you guys will enjoy that yeah. uh, a couple of weeks prior to that did an episode with David Spiegelhalter talking about the art of statistics. So, definitely check that out as well. Huge shout out to our sponsors for this week's episode. It is happening right around the corner. You've only got a few days left uh, June 8th, 9th, and 10th in Toronto. It is the 2022 MLOps World uh, Conference, Machine Learning in Production. Definitely. Check this out. Uh, if you're in Toronto, I'll be there as well. Come say hi. I'll be at the Packy Booth. I'll also be walking around the floor and checking out as many uh, as many, you know. The talks as I can. I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of cool people there. I know a lot of uh, community members from the MLOps community to be there. Shout out to Demetrio. He'll be in the building. I think Makiko will be there as well. So I'm looking forward to hanging out with, with you again, Makiko. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in AI and production, uh, benchmarks, lessons learned from the field, then an um, opportunity that's going to be right up your alley. You are going to definitely enjoy this talk. They've got uh a lot of talks from people from a lot of awesome companies, Meta, Shopify, Hugging Face, Spotify, Tecton, eBay, Lyft, DoorDash, Vanguard, Pinterest, and of course, the company I currently work at, Uh, They're gonna be talking about a, a whole bunch of different topics uh, in these talks, talking about engineering for uh, foundational models to production, uh, a bunch of stuff on Kubernetes, how to build an MLOps platform from scratch as well. Definitely check that out. Uh, there's also a free aspect of the conference. Now, the free aspect is uh, for the demo day and career fair in the exhibition hall. Uh, so that's happening June 9th at 4.30 uh, p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so this is an opportunity for you to just kind of check out what products of the companies are, are are kind of building. And if you're anything like me, like I'm a product head, I love playing with product. I absolutely, absolutely love playing with products. Uh, so it's always a lot of fun um, to, to go to these demo days and see what people are doing in space. A uh, good way to kind of just put up your general knowledge. Uh, so definitely check that out, uh, the MLOps World Conference. Huge shout out. Uh, they've been sponsoring the podcast all month, so I appreciate you guys' support. Uh, shout out to everybody in the room. Shout out to belly in the building. Shout out to what's going on. We keep going. Gina, uh, Vin is in the house. Russell, A.V. Smith, Eric, Tom, Ives, Marillo. Get to see you all there. Um Vin is asking the question, wait, we have to put our stuff into production. Uh yeah, so so let's talk about that, Ben, you, you you made a I think a post earlier today, or maybe it's yesterday, when you're talking about uh there's a lot of people telling you how to build a model, but not a lot of people telling you why you should build a model. Um, I know it's kind of tangential to that uh to that question. We will circle back to it, too. Just having to put stuff in production but let's let's uh let's talk about that let's let's take that off um why is it that we need to build models why why is that we need to build models and if you guys have questions whether you're watching on linkedin on youtube or even right here in the zoom room if you got questions please do let me know i will add you to the queue uh, and we'll get to your questions i know avery has a question as well so i'm, I'm happy to get to, to avery's question uh, after this if you don't mind uh if you're in a rush we'll go ahead and get to
2: let me questions. get to it is that what you said?
0: Well, if you're in a rush, we can get to your question first.
2: Oh, no, no, no. I'm not in a rush. I'm just hanging
0: okay, out. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. Perfect. So then let's let's go over it, man. Let's, let's talk about, uh, first of all, why are there so many people telling us how to build models but not enough telling us why we should build models?
3: I think the first one's easier. And like as crazy hard as what we do is, I think it's easier to explain how to build because... You don't have to have sort of this concept of an end product if you're not talking about why. So, I think that's the biggest for us. That's our biggest gap in the field is that we talk about what to build. And if you really have that kind of mindset, the academic mindset, which is good because I mean, if we didn't have academics, I wouldn't have like we wouldn't have a job. So, academia is really important but at the same time you once you leave academia you come into the the business world now we have to develop something with value we have customers we have users we have stakeholders we have people that actually want money i mean I, i'm sorry we have greedy people that enjoy making cash and so they pay our salaries and so we kind of have to deliver some value to them so all of that changes the way data science works because now it's like, okay, don't just throw data at every problem and you start whittling down what kind of problems do you have to use data on? And it's a pretty small list. And then you go like one step further down the ladder and you say, how many problems do you really need to use models for? It's even smaller. And then you get into deep learning and like the really complex, (laughs) there's, you know, I don't know, 2%, 5% of all business problems might need deep learning, if that. But, and I think we spend like an exorbitant amount of time focused on building increasingly complex deep learning models, because there's a perception that we have actual problems that those can solve when we really don't. We don't have a whole lot of, you know, society, big problems that need deep learning at this point. And so the use cases are pretty limited when it comes to value. So that's why I think it's, you know, we talk more about how to build rather than what to build and why. Like I said, it's just because it's easier. And I remember seeing somebody's, I can't remember whose tweet it is, but they were talking about how just vanishingly small, the Venn diagram between strategists and technologists were, you know, really is, I think it was Jim Breyer was talking about at Davos, how he prefers to invest in technical strategists. Because if you look at the heart of the largest companies, the most successful tech companies, they all have a technical strategist at the very top of the company. And so that's really, and there are just so few.
4: Then thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Mikiko. then after Mikiko, let's go to uh, let's go to Champana and uh, shout out to Joe Reese
0: in the building, Joe Weiss, good to see Matt houses as well to both the y'all. Good to see you uh, last uh,
5: week, by the way.
0: Yeah, it was, man, it was cool. Cool hanging out yeah. with you, man. Uh, Also, Mark Lang in the building, good to see you here as well. Uh, Makiko, go for it.
6: So this is a funny thing, because this was a question I actually posed to Joe and Matt earlier this morning, which was, like, of the problems that exist right now, like, for example, in the MLOps world, like, how many of them are pure, like, problems due to ML versus, like, problems involving software engineering? Right, like, how many of them are problems that are unique to machine learning projects versus like they've been solved. And it's almost more a question of like, has that knowledge actually been propagated and like adopted? And is it relevant to like different groups? So for example, like at Intuit, they have a very specific like enterprise mindset for kind of how architecture is built there. And a lot of times when I was looking at, so we had like a global hackathon and we were seeing these presentations. And I was looking at law that I'm like, that is like a different grade of problem than we are having, for or that that we're trying to solve for like in the Mailchimp unit, where it's like we're almost not super concerned, like we're not looking at the efficiency of like like auto scaling versus not auto scaling. We just kind of assume that we should just do it because like we just don't have the energy and headcount to kind of waste our sort of resources on that question. But to me, it's kind of curious that, like, I feel like a lot of what I see in, like, like the ML ops world, and I'm not sure if this is true in the data engineering world or in the data strategy world. I kind of hear a lot of it. I'm like, okay, I don't know if this is like actually a problem, or if this, if this is just like, let's try to like get money back off of this really big, like, deep learning model that we trained, and see if we can monetize it, or let's see if we can monetize this like other thing. Um, that maybe is only relevant to like five or 10% of people. And this is something that I think about a lot because yeah, like I think especially like if you're trying to like learn to become like an ML engineer or an ML ops engineer, it's like really crowded and noisy right now because I can't tell like what's actually important and relevant versus like what is like an extremely specialized like niche use case.
4: Kiko, thank you so much. Uh, also, Mikiko got a, a YouTube channel that
0: he just launched. Mikiko Bazeli, the MLOps Engineer. Definitely check that out. Mikiko, if you want to shout a link out, put it right here in the chat. I'll be sure to include it in the show notes as well as post it on LinkedIn. You guys check out Makiko's stuff. Uh, go for it, Makiko.
6: Sorry, no, I was just trying to do like the the, the party emoji. Oh, it was the wrong okay. one. Sorry, yeah, I don't have anything. Yeah, yeah,
0: really all good. Well, yeah. Uh, so let's go to uh, uh, Shantan. I would love to hear from you on this one. Then we'll go to, uh, to, to Avery. Uh, I think that was like handbook from Avery. Uh, Shantan, go for it.
7: Sure. I mean, for the new folks at the table and definitely not for me. Could we repeat the question?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the question, uh, so Vinwood made a post that, that I liked. I thought it was an interesting post and it was, um, Essentially, we have too many people teaching you how to build a model, Uh, not enough teaching you, people teaching you why you should build a model. Um, So I guess the the question now you could answer is one of two questions. You could either answer the question, uh, why is that the case? Or the question, why do we build models? or Why should we build a model?
7: I think that second one is is too philosophical. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I like and, a good philosophical discussion, though. I like. like one. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'll go, go for it. Yeah. Whichever one yeah, that
7: could. That's how we understand the world, right? Is by having models of, of how it works. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I feel like Vin and Makiko were both giving answers at, at a you know at a level that I'm not going to be able to get to. Um, but I will. I'll, I'll say the, the following. So. Um, what Makiko was saying reminded me of I was listening to uh, Joe's um, live earlier. Um, I think uh, uh, Jordan uh, was the name of the person who was on, uh, and yeah, he was he was saying something something around uh, down the lines of, you don't have big data until um, you know you spend more time uh, you know you spend more time thinking about how. You know how to efficiently process the data um, than actually just you know storing everything um, and, and you know that that's cheaper. Um, I, I'm paraphrasing it, but but that was the gist of it. Um, which is which is what what Mikiko was saying uh, too, right? and in, in the uh, world of of ML and ml ops is um, I think there is a big uh, trend right now um, of of adopting machine learning operations, and it's not always warranted. Um I think I still think that's kind of like a tangent. Um, I think the reason no one tells you why you should uh, why you're building models is because no one, um, like it's not a, a one specific problem. It's, it's not a, a problem that someone else can solve for you, right? Then like they're doing they're doing your job. and it's not something you can address generally and, and say, oh, this is the reason. Uh, to do other than, yes, I mean, we we build models so that we can understand, you know, how our users behave or X, Y, Z. So it's like, it's much easier to talk about, uh, well, once you have a model, that does X, Y, Z, then this is what you can do to make it more robust, which is a totally valid thing, right? I mean, like this, is it's good to know the best practices around, um, you know, how, how you have a model serve, it's, it's uh, proposed value uh, sustainably and, you know, in perpetuity and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I, I think that no one can can tell you um, in too much depth how how to build a model because each uh, case is, is so different.
0: Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Joe, let's hear from you. Uh, By the way, if you're watching on YouTube or if you're watching on LinkedIn, um, and I know there's nobody watching on Twitch, you can know streaming there. But if you have questions, please let me know. You can drop your question right there in the comment section uh, or in the live chat section on on YouTube. If you're in the room and you've got a question, just go ahead and let me know. And I will be sure to add you to the queue. Uh, Joe, go for it.
8: Matt. (laughs) So I, I recently was looking at some of the reviews for Jamak's uh, uh, book on data match. And uh, one of the reviews said, yeah, this is interesting. There's some cool technical stuff in here, but the book kind of gets off track on talking about organizations and like how to work with people. And <laughs> I feel like all of these data disciplines have this problem where, first of all, um, we all really love the tactical like problem solving stuff kind of people who like played chess growing up, we like very well-defined rules, the kind of people that did math. We like to program, We, we even things like MLOps, like we're given this roadmap to define how to do something. Um, and the second problem is that teaching more the organizational behavior and business value of data is much, much harder. It's like a really tough problem. Um, and I feel like maybe in general, we just need to emphasize that more, like solving, teaching people, how to how to work in an organization, what the business value of data is without them actually having to get that first job to do it. I, I feel like this is a huge chicken and egg problem for getting the first job that even I as a hiring manager, if I find a really talented candidate, but they don't have any experience, I don't want to hire them because I don't know how they're going to work with my team. And so I, I don't know if you can crack that problem. <laughs> like that's, that'd be a huge contribution to education for data scientists, data engineers. And well,
5: I mean, it's kind of like, the, I think there's a lot of data science LARPing, yeah. you know? So, um, so, I mean, you kind of going through the motions of, of building models and all this stuff, but it's kind of, at the end of the day, it's like a pointless exercise if it's not doing anything. But I think a LARP is actually really, we were talking about LARPs on a, on a walk just a bit ago and how, uh, um, I don't know how we got into this topic. It's typical uh, Joe and Matt rant. Um, but no, it does remind me a lot of that though, where it's uh, like everything is sort of a facsimile and there's a lot of ceremony behind it. Like, oh, you have to go to building models, but I don't know. There's, there's as data scientists, you find that there's a lot
4: of other things you could do too.
5: So.
0: Live action role playing,
5: right? Yeah. Yes, LARP, that LARP. Um, Live
0: action
4: role
5: playing. <laughs> so, nice,
0: sure yeah. I, I feel like that's something that, uh, that we have talked about previously on the show as well uh, with Joe? Uh, Joe? See the
5: life of uh Joe Larper. Does that, does that exist? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go uh, do some video LARPing after this. So, yeah, <laughs> Co- cosplay data yeah. science. Yeah, exactly. Ben, it's awesome. Uh,
0: Bikigo, go for it again. Joe it was awesome hanging out with you last week too, man. We had a good time. Uh, go go for
6: it. Yeah, it was interesting because um, back like back when when like I was mentoring like Harper, were like with you over at Data Science Dream job, right? And like whenever I would hit Like we would get questions, right. Where people were like, is there a book on like sales analytics or like marketing analytics? Like we'd get that question all the time, right? Like, could you help us find content geared towards like data scientists for sales and marketing? And it was kind of like, well, part of it is you do have to actually kind of live in their domain a little bit. Like, or, or like, you know, timeshare, I guess you don't have to live there. You just timeshare, like, you know, at a place in like Lake Tahoe or something. Right. Right. And like, I think it is one of those things where, I mean, there's two things I'm kind of wondering. Like, one is the, is the sort of dependent on like the influence and how much of a seat you have at the table? And how does that correspond with like company maturity and size? Because like when I was working for like smaller startups, it was relatively easier to get like a seat at the table to kind of influence product decisions. But I feel like sometimes in bigger companies, like you essentially have like, especially the matrix company where you're like part of a squad or um, I don't know, there's other fancy terms for it. Right. Besides squad or pod or whatever, um, like a lot of times, like what's the kind of pushback if the incentives are to just sort of like deliver stuff, you know, like irrespective of like the actual impact. And I kind of like wonder about that. Um And the other aspect, too, of of the whole, like, getting domain knowledge, I feel like all the domain knowledge I had, right, like working in, like, real estate tech, working in solar, working on sales and marketing analytics, like, I kind of had to get through, like, working directly with the business partner and, like, sitting and living in their meetings and doing a lot of, like, reading in, like, I don't know, like, the revenue ops groups or whatever on LinkedIn, right? But it does feel like sometimes people sort of don't want to do that. But I don't
4: know. Kiko, thank you very much. Uh, anybody else want to
0: chime in here? Uh, if not, we can go to, uh, to, to Avery's question. Um, i'll give it for. once uh, quickly yeah, yeah.
7: Uh, yeah i'll just quickly like I, I don't i'm not entirely sure you should do analytics on who the audience is for for these um happy hours but if there are some um you know really early career folks and by that i mean like sort of in, in college and stuff um the way you learn how to build models um is i mean what you're really learning is how to solve problems so you should major in physics
0: Yes. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. Uh, that's what I was originally wanting to major in, but then I realized I was not smart enough for that. Uh, Tom, let's hear from you. Tom is also a physicist.
9: Real quick. Well, it's actually multi-physical engineering, oh, but officially okay. mechanical engineering, but it doesn't describe me. So I love this topic, by the way, because I don't think we ask, why are we modeling? and um, Actually, I think it's more about return on data. You, you've, got to under, you've got to be in a very rigorous collaboration with your organizational counterparts, your stakeholders, your internal customers, your external customers, whatever. And you've got to figure out, oh, how do we use data that we have on hand to improve the situation? That could be done with a dashboard or a one-off data story it, and in fact, if we would do a better job at those things, we probably would be doing a better job in the data pipelines that lead to predictive modeling. But I think it's wise not to rush to predictive modeling. In fact, while you're developing your pipeline, you, and I've said this many times, even on this show, just getting a Pareto of feature weights for the problem you're looking at that's probably more valuable to the business than having the actual predictions because they can act proactively on understanding those feature weights. And we have to take a real strong responsibility to make what we do clearer to the business side. They don't have to learn how to do what we do, but they should learn, we should help them understand the insights we gain from doing that work. So again, to summarize what I'm getting at is return on data. When The next time I hear how many machine learning models get into production, I'm gonna just say, who effing cares? Would you stop asking that? How much return are we getting on our data assets? Now I will be quiet because you might have to mute me if I do. Tom, thank
4: you very much. I love, appreciate it. Um, Let's
0: go, uh... If nobody else has anything to input here, we can go to uh, Avery's question. Um, By the way, those of you watching on YouTube or on LinkedIn, if you do have a question, go ahead and put it right there in the comment section or in the chat section. Um, If you'd like to get access to the room, send me a message. I'll send you a a link to the Zoom room. Um, Avery, go for it.
2: Okay, sweet. Thanks for letting me ask my question. Um, My question is something that maybe doesn't get asked as much um, in these happy hours, um, it's a little bit more, uh, I guess, business intelligency, um, less less data y and actually, really, it's more operations research, which is like a field of data science that just doesn't get touched on very often. Albeit, there's actually like a lot of jobs and a lot of business need for just operations research. So, doing uh, uh, optimizations and simulations, I think, are, is a little underrated. Um, like everyone likes to create models, right? But um, creating some sort of optimization uh, framework can actually help really solve, do, do more diagnostic analytics and solve business problems. And so um, recently I've been, been tasked. I have this huge data set um, that it's, it's really just the results of a very large uh, optimization. So, so picture it's really in manufacturing. So picture, you know, thousands of, of sensors, or not sensors, but thousands of different levers that you could you could maneuver. You could raise your temperature on one reactor, you know, lower the pressure on another. And there's literally thousands of of variables, parameters for this uh, optimization problem, and they all have constraints. They have like a minimum constraint and a maximum constraint, and then most of it is an, is an LP, uh, so linear program. So it, it solves to to find to maximize some sort of uh, value usually it's it's money because <laughs> we live in America and uh, that's what we like in America is maximizing money. Um, so I get the results of this optimization, um, and it's like a thousand variables. And basically, you have those thousand variables: the min value, the max value, and where it actually landed. And one thing that I've had a trouble doing is how do you visualize a thousand different data points effectively? Um, specifically, because it's not really I don't think it's a, I mean, it is multivariate because there is lots of variables, but it's not like I have, for one, for one run of the optimization, for example, you don't have two different temperatures. It only fixed to one value temperature, but how do you display a thousand different, you know, metrics to a user at once? Uh, I'll, I'll open it up from there, but right now they're doing, they're doing, a, it's just a table and it's kind of messy. So I'm, I'm open to ideas, thoughts.
0: First instinct, I would say, why would you put that much data in front of somebody's face? Thousand different metrics in front of someone at once. Like that's, that's a lot for like a human to, to ingest. And I would, the first thing I would do is, okay, let's say if we're interested in moving this one particular lever, then do we know what other
4: levers uh, move the most when we move this one? And if so, can we hold, hold, you know, like, like it, I
0: don't know, hold, fix doesn't make sense, but can we just display those, right? Like, oh, I'm interested in lever A. And I know that lever A is really correlated, even though we're, you know, loosely with levers B, C, and D, um, and then just visualize those together. Um, or you can just put it all into an auto-encoder, reduce the dimensionality, get, get down to a, a, a few uh, dimensions, and visualize that, maybe. But uh, let's go to Joe for this one. And if anybody has the, uh,
5: Insight here would absolutely love to hear from you. I guess I need to ask like, what are you what action are you trying to drive with this
4: visualization? Uh, that's that's a very good question. Um, most of the time it's it's used
2: well, so they use this table to to check one of the thousand different values. They have things that they the user has things that they care about that I might not necessarily know about. Um, but at the end of the day, it's basically used to try to run your uh, manufacturing plant at an optimized conditions. So for instance, the temperature of this reactor should be around 100 degrees. And that'll be one of the results that comes back to you from this optimization. Situation. So
5: is this like a, a what or a when type of problem? Like I, I'm describing like what happens at a certain time? Um, y- yeah. If it exceeds I- a certain boundary, then I'm you know, a condition that I need to take an action on that? Is that sort of what, what's going on?
2: I think, I mean, I'll just, I'll just be very explicit. It's really for deciding how to run a refinery. I mean, my background's in, in oil and gas. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, what crude oil should we buy and what products should we make them into? And what temperature should we run our reactors at? It's much, that's, it's much more complex than that. But at the end of the day, the people looking at those solutions are mainly answering those three questions.
5: Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'll just say like in situations like that, cause I used to um, I could have actually could have experience in factories and that kind of stuff. Like I would always just make basically a really simple control chart. That's it. So just what are my upper and lower bounds? If it exceeds it, take an action, ideally automate it. So you don't even have to intervene. Right. So that's the other piece of it. Like I'm, I'm you know, a huge fan of like, if I can, if it's a what or a when type question, uh, a report's great. Um, automating a response to that uh, is better.
10: Yeah, so.
8: to, to what extent, I mean, it, it sounds like people want visualizations so a human can make the decision. The question <laughs> is, can you, like Joe was saying, come up with a model that will just give you an answer? And then the next question is, do you need explainability with that, which has become a big issue in data science and machine learning? And then maybe the visualization is now focused just on explainability yeah. rather than on making the decision.
5: But even with this data set, I mean, it's a thousand variables, you said, or something like that. I mean, I you know, I'd really just try and focus on what are the, what are the ones that are useful to you, and probably just reduce the problem that way. I mean, maybe you may not even need to do anything like PCA or anything. It might just be like, um, yeah, these are the this is what's driving everything. We'll so just look at that. So,
2: so I mean, the so the problem
5: with this kind of thing too is you get overcomplicated, and then you get false signal. So,
2: the the interesting thing, like if you look at like dimensionality reduction, something like PCA. Um, and, and going back to what Harpreet said at the beginning, you know, one thing to think about is this is, this isn't a time series. It's, it's not like I like, like you have like in a control chart where you have like multiple values inside of a range. It's like, here's the minimum and the maximum value that we can possibly operate at. Where should we operate it? It's like almost univariate analysis. Like it's one data point for every like dimension we have. And I, right now I'm not thinking about running it multiple times. Although what Harpreet said, I think is really important. I think where it actually gets interesting is when you run it multiple times, but initially they just run it once. It says the reactor for this temperature is this, the pressure for this reactor is this. The problem is there's just a lot of thises. you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Sorry. Makiko.
6: So I, I remember that we were doing like a problem like this in like the supply chain or class that I was taking. Um, and it's like, the way they are describing it's like it's a multi-integer like linear programming problem where you're trying to like you have certain inputs and based off some kind of cost function constraints you're trying to like find this like optimal combination of the different variables i don't know if you'd still want to visualize that though to be honest unless it's like the visualization is to help like justify the like the calculation but i think in terms of actually solving it right like there, there, there's definitely some examples out there that I can probably, I can go search and like link. Um, I remember it because the sample case we were doing was literally like oil in like refineries. <laughs> so that's the only reason why I remember, even remember this. But in terms of like kind of visualization and communicating it, I still kind of feel like it's, you're not going to be able to like visualize it the way you would in Tableau unless it's, like literally as the table of inputs and like the optimization function and like what the actual result ends up being. But this is as someone who is terrible at statistics and I only remember this cause I thought it was really fun and you could do an Excel, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah. Disagreeing with Joe, you know, I don't know if you'd really want to put that many like variables. I mean, with a
5: thousand variables, though, I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, because the the whole point of making a visualization is so you can get convey information that, hopefully is actionable, right? I'm just wondering, like, what are you trying to, what are you trying to drive with this? At the end of the day,
6: yeah, and I think like calculating, like, I think calculating the solution is different, right, from communicating the information. Like, I think the calculating the solution is straightforward. I don't, I don't necessarily know the information right Avery that you would want to convey or the story you'd want to tell besides this is like how it works
4: let's go to yeah. uh let's go oh, sorry uh, no but read. I think I think you're exactly right that
2: I can um basically what they have right now is just a table <laughs> and it, it's a really long table right and it shows the lower boundary the upper boundary and then where it's solved to as well as uh kind of a um, it's called it's called a like a marginal value and that is like if it's at a boundary how much benefit would you get theoretically by expanding that boundary um but i, I kind of agree that it's kind of a factor of what joe talked about um it, trying to decide what's actually important right and, and telling the story of that individual part of the story um and then also maybe giving them access to all the variables like they have now in, in the table so
4: um anyways i, I appreciate you guys' feedback Then uh, go for it. Uh, let's go to Vin. And then, Russell,
0: if you have anything to add, let me know. I think you have some comment there. And then after Russell, you can hear from uh, Tom and Sean. If you have anything to add to this, uh, let me know. Or if anybody has anything to add, just go ahead and raise your hand, and I will get to you. Uh, but then after Avery's question, we'll get to Mark's question. Again, if you have a question, please do let me know in the comments, in the chats, wherever you're at. I'll be sure to uh, get to you.
3: Vin, go for it. Yeah, I saw something it just kind of triggered a memory in me a few minutes ago. <laughs> it was um, designed for hypersonic flight where it was a really similar problem where there was like a ton and I can't remember where I saw this at, I'm like remembering an old video or something like that, but they had a, it was basically just like a target in the middle of the screen. And instead of showing you all the variables, you know, behind the scenes you could pick the variables that mattered to you and it would just move crosshairs it was like the simplest thing i've ever seen it would just move crosshairs and then it would tell you why it moved you know it would basically explain and this is why if you move these few things this is why if you change these few things here's you know where you are from optimal or from whatever you care about as optimal and here's why it was like this dummy simple it just kind of triggered in my head it might be a way or at least give you some place to start at for a visualization where it totally obscured everything. It basically assumed you knew variable wise, you know, cause it sounds like your group knows what variables they care about and what they care about from an optimization standpoint. And so if they can put those two things in really, all you need to do is kind of like what Joe was saying, you know, to the, to the explainability side of it and to the, how close to optimal, you know, what would this change, how close to your optimum would it be? And that's basically the target in the middle. You've just got a crosshair moving around. You know, if you change this to this, what does it do? And people's heuristics tend to take over from there. remember that's what they said was essentially, as soon as people understood the relationships between a couple of different variables or a few different variables, they were able to make better decisions. And so that's how they ended up visualizing, like, if you change this. Here's what it would do to you know aerodynamics, or here's what it would do to top speed or here's what it would do to friction i mean just like this insane number of variables, and so that's how they handled it.
4: again, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, let's go to you then after Tom, uh, Sean, if you
0: got anything to add, let me know, uh, and then we'll go to uh, mark
9: so Avery, I would enjoy doing this with you offline but um. I think the thousand variables for some, th- th- this is a, a refinery type thing or a big chemical process, right? Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense now, but um, it, it would be a brutal process, but it's necessary. Um, start looking at what you can reduce through, uh, first you scale, then you look for collinearity. Um, it doesn't mean you take away uh, all the collinearity, but it's instructive because if you can keep the strongest collinear variable of a group of collinearity uh, of features that have collinearity, now you've done some feature reduction, and some people were spot on. PCA is a great way to reduce the complexity, but it it doesn't really. A lot of people don't remember that. Oh, just because I can take away some PCA features. That doesn't mean I've reduced the number of features in original space. I still have the responsibility to say, okay, we're now using these PCA features, but each of them relate to these combinations back to the original space. But you go through these and then I'm sure, even if you get very little feature reduction, you wanna add a lot of feature engineering to those thousand variables. I am of course joking, but it could be that, once you do the feature engineering, you find some amazingly rich features that will allow you to do even more feature reduction. And Now you can go with some new explainable AI to the group. But the thing I most wanted to encourage you to do, map out what you're currently doing and point out to them, this is gonna be a multi-generational process to get to better and better models and you should pay me millions of dollars over the next few years to answer it for you, because it will be hard. And no one's quite as smart as me and able to do this with my domain knowledge and my machine learning skills. Yes.
0: Awesome, pay you a million dollars over the next
9: five years. Uh, I was speaking I was speaking as Avery, not as Tom Likes, just so everyone knows. Uh, Tom, thank you very much. Uh, Avery, yeah, I was doing... a. Uh, a quick
0: research i sent you this paper uh it's called OptMap, OPTMap, and it's uh, using dense maps for visualizing multi-dimensional optimization problems like i'm hoping there's code in here somewhere i didn't look at it but i just saw like one page with really nice graphs that might be helpful so check that out uh, let's go to uh mark and then let's go to Russell. Uh, if anybody else has if anybody else has anything to add to this uh, topic do let me know Uh, Otherwise, we will go from Mark's comment here to Russell and then back to Mark for his question.
1: Hey, so uh, I think I've picked up enough context from from listening to everyone. And this is more so kind of like brainstorming, outside the box kind of thing, applying to this. And more so thinking about like my social sciences brain applying to your very engineering focused thing. But uh, one of the key things is like, all right, you have a thousand variables, which is a lot. Um, but also, it seems like there's this component of like, there's a lot of interactions between these variables, hence why it's very important that you you keep track of them. And so, you, you're you trying to reduce, right? So, um, Tom definitely talked about multicollinearity. That's a mouthful. Um, which I think is like a really cool thing. Also, feature engineering. I don't know if this will apply to this, but my mind immediately went when thinking about interactions like mediation analysis. So. Um, and this is like trying to draw back from grad school, but you say, you know, A causes C, but between A and C, there's B. And as there's some interaction happening there. And so my my thought process is if you did some mediation analysis, maybe there's different stakeholders or maybe there's certain components of all those 1,000 variables that are important to understanding your outcome and depending on which outcome or which variable you're important, uh, you're focused with, maybe that mediation analysis could point you to the right variables that are most important for that subset as a way to like kind of logically. Um, Again, I don't know if this could be applied to this space because I've only really seen it for like social sciences Um, and I'm thinking way back to grad school, but just, just something out there to
4: think about how to account for interactions. Mark,
10: thank you. Uh, let's go to Russell and then uh, Shankar. Thanks, Alfred. Um So I think Tom and Vin and Mark have, have pretty much touched on everything I wanted to say. Uh, but I was just going to suggest you know a thousand variables—it's a huge amount. I would, if you can, separate those from the data altogether and map out the variables alone. So identify a network relationship map of the variables. So you can identify the the binary collinearities, the multicollinearities, the contralinearities, uh, you know, inverse pro- uh, proportionalities, and absolute conflicts, etc. And perhaps think about it like a uh, like a one thousand track mixing desk for those that like music or or DJing. So if you put something up, it's going to have an effect on everything else there. And, you know, some of the, um, the automated routines I have on those desks you put one thing up and it moves another one down. So understands what that map is. So when you do put it onto the model and uh, I can see Joe laughing at me here. Have I got the, have I got the mixing desk wrong?
5: No, no, no. We're I mean, just noticing your, your uh, video. It always stretches out. So you get like this yeah. uh, time warp Russell or something. It's kind of funny. So. Uh,
10: a bit, bit like Max Headroom for anyone from the 80s. Um, but yeah, uh, so so map that out so you can give it to anyone that's that's going to then digest the outputs or the data from the model so that they can understand if they change variable A and variable B will naturally be affected by it or or completely blocked out that they understand that that happens and are not surprised at the at the effect in the
4: output. What, and I do uh, problem- Oh, still there.
10: Yeah, I was just—I was just okay. going to say, apologies to Joe because I can see he's got some real good uh, uh, mixing equipment there, and I'd probably completely murdered my no, You analogy you're right, man.
5: It's so—it's all good. I mean, oh, you're from yeah. the UK. Everyone, they're DJs and stuff.
10: So, <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually
0: actually a true fact. What uh, stereotype, Joe. You We've know, UK DJs. <laughs> uh, so Jonathan, go for it, uh, and then after Shantana we'll circle back to uh, Mark's question. Um, Go
7: for it, Yeah, I mean, I could ask a lot of different questions <laughs> before trying to answer it, but I'll, I'll limit it to one. Um, what is the point? And I think this is uh, others have said this too, right? Like, especially Joe, I think. Um, like, what what are we achieving with the visualization in particular, right? Are folks uh, just interested in the values that uh, the the vari- variables are taking for like some process that they're running? Um, in, in which case, like is like a dashboard or, or any sort of visualization the right method? Um, are they just inputting it into another, you know, software service? Um, and in, in which case, you know, you, you don't you don't need to go through that visualization aspect. So like I, I just am very skeptical of a thousand dimensional visualization.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I understand that. I think I think the problem is This is really what's used to determine how to run an entire refinery. And refineries are huge. So you're literally having like probably 70 reactors, and there's a temperature, a pressure, and a flow for each of those. Plus, there's all the stuff you're putting in, which is probably like 25 different things. And then there's all the stuff you're getting out, which is probably 25 different things. So, right there, there's probably 200 variables. But I, I agree. I think breaking down the actual problems, because it's not like everyone cares about certain aspects of it so i think breaking it down makes it better i agree Uh, no i'll tell you the the types
5: of reports that i see that make my eyes bleed and i saw one today actually so i was crying a river of tears of blood actually um no but it was a table it was like too many columns i was like what, what are you gonna do with this you know it's it's just a lot of um data not a lot of information and so but some people like staring at tables so i don't know some people like to watch the world burn i guess. So, what are you gonna do when you look at a table, right? What are you looking for? So, I don't know. I think There's you're right. That. Just reduce it down. I mean, this doesn't seem that complicated. It just seems like presenting as it is right now. Presenting it as it is is. Um, I wouldn't call it complicated. I would just call it like super annoying and probably like wouldn't yield any re- any actionable results. People, I don't know. It's confusing, but. Well, I'll stop my round. Thanks.
4: Yeah, John, thank you. Vicky
0: was a final point to add on this. Uh, Navi, do you have a point to add to Avery's original
4: question or is it a new question?
11: Um, I don't know the original question, but I'm just kind of adding on to the um, the reporting piece because okay. my uh, my, my life does revolve around it quite a bit. Okay. I think the, the part that uh, most people miss is what do you care about right like like when i work with i don't know 40 50 variables across different media channels it adds up to a lot of variables can you hear me okay yeah and when we and the the question to ask is most of the stakeholders have their five or six kpis that they really care about you know um so start with the end goal and then go backwards. Most of the times, I think what ends up happening is you start with that big spread spreadsheet or database. You want to throw everything in there and then see what that layout looks like and then cut it, you know, versus the other approach, say, hey, I only care about these five things. And just a different strategy of thinking about how to build about your dashboard is important. And I think a lot of companies don't do that enough at the forefront versus at the at the end. Um, and that's why, you know, you spend months and months saying, hey, I only care about four things, you know. Uh,
4: Debbie,
0: thank you so much. Let's go to Mikiko. Then after Mikiko, we'll go to uh, we'll go to Mark's question, and then after Mark's question, we'll go to Eric's question. Also, shout out to Tashi. Tashi, it you. been so long. Good to see, you, man. Um, let's go to uh, yeah. Let's go to Mikiko uh, for a final kind of uh, point on this. And then we'll go to uh, Mark's question.
6: Yeah, I mean, for better or worse, like if you have so like that's what I was thinking. I'm like, could this be a dashboard where it's you have the different questions like broken out and like the different actions? And I guess to Support Tom's, you know, monetization suggestions. Sometimes like when you build something nice for like one business partner, or key stakeholder, the other key stakeholders want it, but in a slightly different format, answering a slightly different question. And that's how you get a, a retainer or multi-project engagement. So I think it's also okay if you, if you slim it down to like answering a core question, do like an absolutely bang up solid job on it. And then other people want it so yeah and also once you like develop like the domain expertise in the business partnership like with that first key stakeholder then it actually makes it easier to then deal with all the other key stakeholders
4: Avery, hopefully that was helpful um, if you got any uh follow-up questions i could definitely
0: uh add you to uh, end the end queue after we get to uh, eric's question uh but great discussion Avery, thank you so much for kicking that off um, and Mark is next. So, Mark, go for it. By the way, if you're listening on YouTube or on LinkedIn and you've got a question, please let me know. I'll go ahead and add, you, uh, add your question here to the queue. Uh, if you're watching on LinkedIn and you want to join on the live session, send me a message. I'll
1: give you a link to the room. Mark, go for it. Hey, everyone. So, uh, I'm about to embark on a really fun project where I'm about to translate a whole bunch of business logic in one technology and move it to a new technology. Um, And my key thing is, you know, how can I ensure there's parity between both approaches? What gotchas should I be looking out for? Um, Just looking for some general advice of making that transition. I've done something similar before as a whole entire team and I played a small part, but now I'm like leaving that part. And so um, if anyone's ever done like a migration of some sorts of data, you know what would you look out for what are some kind of like landmines that you've seen so i can avoid those
0: i see joe and matt uh in the corner there uh laughing because uh i'm sure this this is something they've got experience with so why don't you guys go for it and if anybody wants to chime in
8: go ahead and just like right, that do you, you want to take break from Rich. that
0: general
4: sense,
8: yeah i mean uh So so Andy Petrella has this notion of uh, data observability-driven development. And so I think the core idea, I mean, there's a lot more to it than this, but it's the idea that you want to start testing your data right away. And so test the, the business logic in the source system and see if it at least corresponds to what you think the logic is, and then start building out the new system and then run tests as you do that development process. And so that allows you to proceed in a fairly agile manner and hopefully have something that makes sense at the end versus like trying to do a gigantic lift and shift and then finding tons of I guess we can talk talk about
5: maybe anti-patterns of migrations. How (laughs) about that? Well, I mean, so...
1: That was really useful because I was about to actually do all my testing at the end. So uh, thank you so much Uh, no, no. You should always
5: do that at the beginning if you can. Yeah, for sure. Uh, It's like TDD, uh, (laughs) test-driven development, right? Like, you know, you you don't write your test after you write your code. The whole idea is to do it before and you should... Uh, you know, kind of begin with the end in mind So, anti-patterns for migrations. Let's talk about these for a bit, right? So we, we see these, um, I mean, uh, we do migrations, right? We've seen a few of these. Um, and so anti, anti anti-patterns, so definitely, um, anti-pattern number one, definitely lift and shift everything. And, um, one gigantic false swoop that's, um, a sure recipe for disaster. Um, definitely don't understand your dependencies. That's number two. Um, don't understand that anything relates to itself. Just, just blindly lift it and, and, you know, port everything over. Um, don't understand, uh, the cost mechanisms to the new thing that you're moving to. Just assume it's like the old one. Um, geez, what else, what else, what else would be an anti-pattern? Um, don't, don't get anyone involved. Just, you know, blindly do it yourself or do it things after the fact and tell people you did it. What would be other
8: things? Mm-hmm. I think, you've already co- I think you've already covered some of these, but like the, the one about understanding the cost mechanisms, um, when you lift and shift, use exactly the same ingestion patterns in the new system used and use exactly the same like- That's an
5: anti-pattern, go, by the yeah. way. Yeah, don't yeah. do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um am yeah, happy to you know, answer questions uh, offline, uh, but those are some general things. Uh, migrations are, uh, I don't know what, they're always fun, I guess. That's the one way to put it. Yeah, the fun. Yeah, you'll have a lot of fun no, It is
8: just exciting to get into new technology If you once you hit walls and you need it to do new interesting things.
5: Yeah, yeah. So getting hit walls, so have like the proverbial airbag um, on your journey as well because you will need it. It will deploy at some point. So, um, yeah. But... Um, yeah, migrations are one of these things. that I'm sure we you know, we could talk about this for for hours. And we don't have enough time. So,
0: well, I got a, I got a question then. Uh, just you know, for yeah. for people like 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 myself, um, and and anybody who's listening, when you talk about a migration, right? Mark, you said business logic migration. that like, I understand. Like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, what does that mean? What does that entail? Like, kind of just conceptualize kind of that for us.
1: Yeah. So I can't I can't go to, into too many uh, details, unfortunately. But um, to give a, give a good idea, say, for instance, um, you have your data and you're running some type of process to get the data into a certain format. Let's just say, for instance, like data engineering. You you have like a machine learning model. You do some data engineering, right? Um, you have a process to create those features. Shifting to a new technology that help you maybe scale better, um, doing that same exact kind of transformations um, or data prep or wherever it may be, to another kind of format and so the potential downfall is like i recreate all this logic but i do it wrong or i miss something and now we have two systems that don't match up and downstream it's just impacting a lot of things and the company catches on fire worst um, case scenario
5: yeah i mean don't want that to happen so um yeah i think what, what uh, uh matt said is is i think absolutely correct like building tests uh, up front you know build in data quality tests uh you could use um maybe for data quality use great expectations and just make sure as you're um bringing in data that um you know data is is matching right or andy petrella he runs kenzo i mean there's no no, no shortage of data observability tools at this point you know big eye Monte Carlo, whatever you want to use i mean they're all great 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 and you know metaplane and so forth I, I will say like just make sure you're, you're doing this stuff early and often i think this is actually um the stage when you you want to bake in a lot of your business logic into the form of tests or some sort of um, reliability checks uh, before you start moving stuff in. Because what will happen, something will break, right? Something is not going to match. And as I said, you know your airbag will deploy, and so you know making sure that you have these um, checks in place will at least uh, you know it's a difference between like I guess you know breaking a nail and going to the ER if you if you know what I'm saying. So.
8: Anything you want to add? No, that's no, it's great.
5: Yeah, that's great. Yeah,
1: is <laughs> <laughs> going to be so serious and that y'all just saved me so much because I was legit about to do the whole thing and then test at the end. And now I know that is bad.
5: Yeah, we're like the world's, world's worst consultants. We should we should tell you like,
8: yeah, I'm mean, doing, doing a great job. Like <laughs> do that and you know, give us a call later. Nah. It's fine. One other thing I'd add is, and you're probably already doing this, but going back to the Andy pattern of like lifting and shifting everything, prioritize and like decide what actually should get moved. And you may find a lot of the other stuff that was in the old system maybe you don't actually need, or maybe you need something slightly different in the
4: new system. Yep.
0: Also a huge shout out to Abe from uh, uh, Superconductive, which owns great expectations. Uh, Go to my YouTube channel, uh, just type in like, Abe, I did a thing with uh, Abe, uh, Jimmy, and um, Matt Blaza We're talking about um, nice. these type of issues. So I think you guys will enjoy that. It um, goes back when I was that comment. Um, but I think it's still on my YouTube. So check that out. Um, anybody else have uh, anything to add to
4: Mark's question? Uh, if so, go ahead and let me know. Uh, does not look like it. So let's go to, um. well, then anything that? what did you cast a question by any chance, Vin? Oh yeah, I step separate for a second. Uh, Mark, do you want to uh,
0: quickly rephrase that question and see if we can get uh, Vince perspective?
3: No, I heard the, yeah, I stuck around for the oh, question. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, come on, I can't beat Joe. I was already <laughs> got it covered
0: there you go joe Thanks so much uh so let's go ahead and let's jump to uh to eric's question and then after eric uh, patrice is in the building patrice asked a question on uh linkedin um regarding a uh, uh a post that been made a video about the seven mistakes that uh, that he made uh, i want to touch on that too so that's uh that's great uh joe thanks for hanging out sean thanks for hanging out appreciate you guys being here uh by the way mark marillo if you guys like you guys want to jump in at any point, man? You guys just let me know. That everyone is welcome to participate. Just use like the the raise hand
4: icon, and I'll go ahead and uh, put you guys uh, into the queue. Um,
12: Eric, are you still here? Yes, you are. Eric, go I'm totally it. still here. Okay. Okay. So I. So this is a question about greedy versus, I guess, dynamic um, algorithms. So I have a system that is currently currently greedy right so it just it's gonna match it's gonna match people to i guess i'll just call them consumers it's going to match a consumer to a partner um if they're a good match and let's just say it'll match them up to three and so it's going to match a consumer to a partner up to three up to three uh maximum and there you may be you know potentially qualified to talk to four or five or six but we're going to cap it at three and so the way the algorithm works right now is it says, well, which three are the most beneficial to me right now? And it will match to that right away. But what we find is those partners have capacities and they'll hit them at different times of the day. And not all of those filters are the same like width, right? Some are pretty narrow. And so they're going to catch a narrow slice of people and some are wide. And so if we get to the end of the day, and this filter got this wide filter got filled up early in the day and there's only like a narrow filter left, we're going to have consumers who aren't going to be able to be matched to a partner because this wide filter that is redundant with this narrow filter was chosen just because it was more advantageous at the moment rather than using some kind of other system, some kind of other algorithm to I guess I guess use probability to say, well, chances are pretty good given what we've seen in the past. We're going to fill this if we, uh, you know, hang tight. We're just going to put this off to the side and and fill it and and, and guess that it's going to be filled later. So I've kind of thought about. I'm trying to. I guess what I'm trying to say is, okay, so what kind of like tool or algorithm or something can I use for that? I've been thinking about like Monte Carlo simulation of like what different Days look like in order to, yeah, just kind of like simulate what that would look like to see how much of that problem exists. Trying to quantify it right now, um, and then how to go about creating that more, more dynamically optimal uh, algorithm rather than something that's more greedy. Uh,
4: Open up to anyone that has any insight or uh, clarifying questions. Um, that nothing at the moment. Do uh, anybody any insights or?
3: I'll yeah, I'll jump ahead. in. Yep. Ask a whole bunch. Nope, never mind. Mark, you saved.
1: Let's have a clarifying question because uh, that that seems like a very tough problem, and there's a lot of moving parts here. And I didn't really fully follow. And so, could you repeat? Like, I know there's this matching component of people but where you lost me was like the 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 wide versus narrow window like with the filters sure yeah can you just explain so, like that one piece and like hopefully maybe think of something or Ben can
12: sure yeah sure so i mean so i work at lending tree right so we're talking we're talking about people who let's hit somebody who wants to get a mortgage and you might have a lender who says i am willing to talk to people who make between $50,000 a year and $300,000 a year and then you might have another lender that says, well, I only want people that make between $50,000 a year and hundred thousand dollars a year. So it's like a different, like this filter is going to catch a larger number of people than this filter is going to catch just because it's requirements are more stringent. Does that kind of make sense with the width thing? And so if somebody comes along who makes between 50 and a hundred thousand, it's going to pick one of those two filters. And if it picks the wide filter, Then let's say that one, that one's full now, like it's a bucket and it's full. So it's going to be taken off the table. So somebody comes along later who makes more than a hundred thousand dollars. This filter might sit there unfilled. It's going to be like, Hey, I'm this, you know, I could have been filled earlier and this one could have been filled, but instead only one got filled. And then somebody leaves with sad face emoji.
1: <laughs> so what I'm getting from this is, and let me know if I'm correct, this seems like both a ranking and optimization problem at the same time, where you have to rank kind yeah. of like what's the best fit for a specific
4: lender, while also optimize across globally, what will be the most matches.
12: Would that seem correct? Yeah, I think so. That's actually, that's a really helpful split of ranking and optimization. I've done my part. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so real quick, like I, I, I'm still not understanding why the other buckets would not
4: be filled. Would the other buckets not be filled because there's, it sounded like overlaps in like the conditions? Yeah, so let's see here.
12: Think of how I can explain it. So, Different. So it's like, this is over, I guess this is oversimplified. because I'm just talking about one tiny, one tiny condition. Right. But if we're going to, we're going to rank those, we're getting, so the buckets, we're going to rank the buckets to say, well, these are those top three buckets that we should give you. But it, it may be that there are, let's say four buckets that the person fits in. And we're going to give them those top three buckets based on whatever like internal ranking algorithm we have. We're going to give them those top three. But like, if we change that ranking algorithm to like give more weight to something else, then it might actually grab one, two, and four and save three for later. Cause it knows like, well, every day at like 9 PM, after every, everything, all the other buckets are full, we tend to get people who come in and we'll fit that bucket. So like, Yes, they could be filled earlier, but we're gonna we're gonna hold it for the the late crowd. Um but how do we like choose how do we how do we adjust that to to, to think about that and look look further ahead than just like our local optimum?
4: Mark, see your hands up, you want to go before or after them?
1: Uh I just have another clarifying question yeah. that would make things a lot easier for me to understand does this need to happen in real time or is it batch predictions or batch kind of matching real time, real time. That's tricky. Now I understand why you're talking about the Monte
4: Carlo aspect of like, what's the probability of like this person being filled later? Yeah. Okay. I'm curious Maybe. what others have to say. And then I'll collect my yeah. thoughts. Let's hear from Ben. Uh, ben, go for it. By the way,
0: shout out to me. i didn't, sure, shout out early. Let's see you again. Uh, go for it, Ben.
3: Yeah, I mean, Mark's kind of onto it. You need multiple models. One of them is going to be a like a demand forecasting model, where Uh you look at just likelihood. You know, it sounds like income's a big deal. Look at I'm sure credit score is a big deal. I'm sure you know there's some other features, but pick out your biggest and segment your audience. You know, so the first thing you want to do is segment out uh, from a banking standpoint or from a lender standpoint. You want to have a segment of lenders and get rid of the windows. That way you're no longer worried about a lender having a window. You now have a segment of windows and there are these lenders behind them. Now you don't have to worry about the windows anymore because that's the part that's going to be the most complicated to do in real time is to try to, you know, play like almost dominoes with, you know, matching a person to a window. But what if the window is closing later? And so, I mean, I would, you know segment customers segment lenders and then hide both of them behind the most important features so that you can forecast demand with respect to things like income so you're not worried like i said so you're not worried about the individual windows with respect to a lender now you know how many slots you have for each one of the segments and you can begin matching that way and if you Forecast demand, saying that later in the day we, for some reason, have more of these people show up, which is kind of like that's a that's an oddball problem to have. Like people with high income show up at some time, or people with low income show up at a different time. That's that's weird. I, yeah, never thought about that. But that's what I would do: is really hide it behind segmentation because then you don't. The windows part kind of goes away a little bit. And you can fit things into like you have a certain number of parking slots almost and or parking spaces, you know, inside of a parking lot. And then you're not worried about which lender. You're just worried about how many parking spots do I have? And, you know, how many cars do I get at 6 p.m. that fit into this, you know, cars, semis? I don't know. Hopefully that metaphor makes sense. But create multiple models. One of them is behind forecasting, maybe even supply one's forecasting demand, do two that segment each end of it and then figure out how to match with the optimization of as many people as possible get matched. And as soon as the business sees that, they're going to change your objective to maximizing your revenue. So just be ready for that because that's going to be the next piece that they'll end up saying, well, if you optimized it for revenue will we be matching differently and just like i said be ready for that well that's really helpful and yeah the parking lot
12: thing is like a way better analogy because it's kind of like i mean except it's not like one person to like one parking space they can have more than one but the idea is at the end of the day how many cars did we want to get in and how many parking spots do we have available throughout the day or whatever given time and is it are we able to like please as many people on both sides of the equation as possible, but,
3: but realize it's not one parking lot. Like there are several different parking lots. That's why I'm using the parking lot analogy. Like one parking lot fits a, you know, mini subcompact car. The next parking lot fits a monster truck, mm-hmm. you know, cause in mm-hmm. Nevada, you always have to have parking spots allowable for the one foot lift kits that we seem to be fond of out here. And then you have, you know, semi parking, and so it's not so much, you know, and the way you're thinking about it now is this parking lot has four slots for compact cars, two slots for midsize, one slot for a semi, but separate that out. So pretend it's basically one parking lot for semis and just group everything in there. That's why I'm saying kind of segment it in that way. So you have a parking lot, not a particular company has this capacity, but we over the course of the day have this much capacity altogether. So one parking lot is one segment that can handle one and then just match it up to a customer segment where the car that can fit in the parking spot is matched up with the parking spot. Instead of worrying about, having a certain number of spots per lender. Like I said, just break it out by the segment. And you're kind of hiding customers and lenders behind the segments. That way the because what you're trying to do is match the two and make them the same, not just matching people to lenders, but you're trying to make the segmentation on both sides equivalent and then figure out how many you know, demand on one side, supply on the other side. So that at the beginning of the day, you kind of have a picture of what you have available and what you're most likely to have happen so that, you know, how many slots and how to, you know, it's hopefully that metaphor that I'm just killing right now is, is making sense. Good
12: parking lots. Are they, are they within a parking lot? It's like a meta lot now, or you need to. Like um, that, go that's trademark. So I can't
3: use meta lot. But, um, yeah, that's that's trademark. I can't do that. So, uh, you know, I would say a pseudo lot. How about a pseudo lot? All right,
0: uh, Mark, let's hear from you. Uh, in the meantime, uh, well, Mark gets ready here. I found this article that might be helpful. It's a medium publication, uh, it's uh, data machine learning marketplace optimization at Upwork and kind of the issue they're dealing with. Uh, Sounds similar to what's been discussed now the breaking down the marketplace into homogeneous segments with predictable behavior, trying to understand optimal pricing, uh, which kind of, I guess there's some analogies that you're doing there uh, and then quantify Great. and predict supply and demand. So it might be useful. Hopefully there's some, something to abstract
4: away from that. That's helpful. So cool. uh, Thank you. Mark, well, right, go for it. So I have another clarifying question. Um, how important
1: is like, time in this? Like, do you care that like a lender or a customer will leave if it takes too long to match? Or is it just a matter yeah. of, it, is it more important to have like a correct match or to have a correct match within a certain time window?
4: Um,
10: or is I that would, even not
13: a problem time at this,
12: is, this point? Time's definitely important. Um, it's although if I had to choose between time and something that's, uh suboptimal like for the company but gets the customer what they need that's what i would choose um but you know time is always important when you're waiting for a screen to load or something like that we're all impatient cool
1: um
12: and by time i mean like uh
1: like the the app loading quickly but i mean like time from requests of lending
4: to um like actually signing and like getting a loan through lending tree
12: um so so Lending tree isn't a lender. We connect people with lenders. And so once they're connected, our job is for the most part done because they're going to now, like they're going to be working with the lender to like sign and get the loan and everything. And it differs by mm-hmm. product, how long that takes and stuff. Um, for some people, that's super important. And for other people, it's like, obviously you care, but it's not as like a deal breaker or whatever. Okay. Because I'm more I'm so thinking about the optimization
1: component. I'm just thinking back to like my public health modeling class where we did like healthcare clinic, uh, Q optimization. Uh, Mm Um, and like the idea being is you have the supply side and this demand side. And Mm -hmm. the, the analogy that my professor gave was like this bathtub where your, uh, supply or uh, your demand is the water going into the bathtub and your, uh, let me take a step back. (laughs) Your supply is the, uh, the rate in which the water can drain from the bathtub and your demand is the water that's going into the bathtub. And so the idea being is like with those two components, you can figure out one, um, how long it will take for something to go through, but also the probability of people jumping out of the queue and being like, this is too long for me to be in and thus reducing Mm -hmm. the amount of people. And so the reason why I'm thinking that's important is like, again, we're trying to optimize for trying to determine like, what's the, the best amount. Um, I think the key one, of the key things when thinking like a mental model of this is like, how long is someone willing to wait before they go to your competitor to, um, to like get, get their loan, especially if they're shopping around, you know, they might go to like lending tree and some other lending service or their own bank. Right. What, how long would it take before someone's like, I don't want to do this through this platform anymore. Um, and so, I'm happy to send you references because there's actually a whole calculation where you can legit calculate um, these, uh, the supply, the demand, and the, the jump out rate. And considering that you're already probably collecting all this, I imagine you have all the variables to, to determine this, but that can be another piece. Um, and then and I'm, I'm happy to send that to you on the side. And then another thing top of mind is going back to like Ben's kind of like bucket things. For the the ranking side of things, um, for the ranges, I know you you're like there's probably like a wide range, is like by by lender, but if you can bucket them potentially by like um, zero to one hundred thousand, one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand. You get the idea, like different buckets of like the range. And I'm curious if you can build like an individual model for each bucket, whereas like the probability of a user, um, probability of a user. Um, being accepted for a loan for that bucket. And so you'll have like a range of like probabilities and those could be
4: your features Ah. that you use to determine your ranking.
12: Well, that's interesting. That's a cool angle I hadn't considered at all. I'm gonna write that down. So probability of a user. Yeah, and so my mind- So you need the probability for that user of for every single bucket that is like relevant to them, right?
1: Yeah. And not even that even relevant. It can be the ones that are not relevant. So the probability will just be zero. Um but essentially the idea being like I don't know your underlying distribution, but like you I'm just random easy model to understand like you fit a logistic regression, zero one. Do they do they get would they get the loan, yes or no? Um not saying you use logistic regression, but the idea like you get a probability out of that. Um, and then from there, you, you'll you have essentially a whole bunch of features and it's condensed down from all these different factors to you know these sub buckets. And this is ma- cool. mainly just how I interpreted what Ben was talking about.
4: So Ben, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said Mark nailed it. Another uh, uh, question here as well, uh, go for it.
11: Oh, no, I was just asking about when you're, are you, are you talking about this is all like first party data? Yeah. Okay. So there's no like ad server or any media third party data that you're using? No. So your key KPI data is, your key KPI is like, what are you, what's your key KPI to optimize on? I still don't.
12: So in this case, like we were talking about with, I'll just go back to like people and buckets is just saying at the end of the day, how many people, so let's say that right now in a day, if we have a hundred people come to our site and we have a hundred potential buckets, but they don't all, they're not all like the same size. Let's say that 90 people end up getting into a bucket. So we have 90 buckets that are filled. So we have 10 people who didn't get a bucket and 10 buckets that didn't get a person. And we want to get it to be a hundred people, a hundred buckets, everybody got matched. Everybody got matched up. There and so it's kind of it's that I guess ratio of people people who fall to the floor who are who aren't matched. Okay.
4: Sorry, I don't have an answer. It's just curious. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, any other, I guess, inputs or insights to share Eric? Eric, was that helpful? Were you able to kind of
0: maybe get some, some vocab words that you could take and then do some searches as Yeah.
12: Yeah, I think that that's been like the biggest thing is I'm like, I have kind of some ideas, but only like two or three words to describe them. Um, yeah. So getting some ideas and understanding the new construct of Schrodinger's parking lot is really helpful. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, definitely, thanks for the ideas and the uh, cool. words. Uh, Mark, go for it. I
0: can't remember, Mark, if, if your hand is up from before, I forgot to put it down, but okay.
1: That was a complete mistake, but something that popped in my head as well is thinking about matching, looking at matching algorithms for, like, propensity score matching. That may be the wrong path, because it's probably diff- it's a different problem. But the idea of, like, the step before um before you kind of do your analysis of principle square matching is the matching component you have all these different covariates and you're trying to get it down to like a single variable to describe all your covariates um maybe a keyword that might fi- lead you to something that's useful um so like one of them i'm blanking on like Mahalanobis distances and stuff
12: like that um <laughs> crazy crazy stuff to like. find a reason to use that because, like, what the heck is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying
1: that's the correct thing to go, but it's more so a key word to figure out how are other people considering all these different variables and matching to someone? Um, I don't think it's the right solution for your thing, but I think it might give you some clues on what's potentially out there and, like, what literature people are
4: referencing. I will also send you that. Great, thank you. I used this d- distance once when I was doing a uh, clustering problem, I'm trying to find the segments of, of different cluster. That was a long time ago, though. Uh, does not look like right. there's any other questions or input here. Um, is there any the?
0: I guess, just any questions, thinking new direction? Eric, hopefully that was helpful for you. Uh, great
9: questions, great discussions today, too. I've got a critical community question. Yeah, please. I'm feeling bad for my brother Harpreet because he's been out of his man cave for quite a while now. So what's the ETA on getting back to your, your main man cave? Yeah, dude, these guys, dude,
4: they've, first of all, they're taking their sweet ass time, right? So
0: they finally got the floors in, but let me tell you how they went about this, right? Not only is the basement incapacitated and, and out of whack, uh, when they came to put out the flooring, they put it right in the middle of our kitchen. There's boxes upon boxes of luxury vinyl planking, just blocking an exit and entryway right to the house, blocking my fridge. And so we've been having to like navigate around this entire week. And I'm like messaging the, the person, like, "What are you doing? Like, our life already is like inconvenienced. You're making it even worse." Um, I don't know. I don't know when this can be done uh they've put all the drywall up the floors are in they just gotta paint they just gotta fix the bathroom i gotta get all my shit back uh
4: soon i hope soon i hope, I hope.
0: uh but i will tell you this uh there's some extra renovations that i've done in my office that are going to look pretty cool on camera once, uh, once i get to it
9: I'm, I'm excited for it uh but yeah until then, so, so i've like, been i've been explaining to people in the chat that we're down to our last few chickens. And I built my chicken coop in hopes that when the family got burned out on taking care of chickens, it could become my new man cake. So there it is. Oh, sorry for my shake. There it is, nice. 200 square feet, but I got a pretty fire. It. it looks pretty bad. And I know it'd be hard to believe, but it's got a ton of chicken poop in it. So I got to fix that insulated. <laughs> yeah, clean that out. That
0: could not be healthy uh to be for sure. Uh actually Patrice, I, I want to get to Patrice's question because she had a question for Vin that was a really good uh question from LinkedIn. Uh so let's let's get to that then then I guess we could uh, begin to wrap it up after that but go for it Patrice.
13: Thanks Harpreet, and thank you, Vin, for the seven career mistakes video. I always appreciate those because there's at least one thing in them that's general enough to remind me that even as a mid-career switcher, there there is something I know that's that's worth knowing um, as I go into something completely new. So my question is off of that: if there's any um, if there's any mistakes that you wish you had made and didn't make or if there's maybe an eighth story or an example that you cut that might fit into a director's cut, if you have more more thoughts along those lines of um, things that might be good for others to to know and skip over and make more interesting or educational mistakes
4: than some of the ones that you've encountered in your career.
0: Real quick for for everyone listening, uh, Goldwyns, YouTube channel, the high ROI the scientist, released a video uh, just a couple of days ago, seven career mistakes. Um, if, if you can real quick, real quick, just to rattle off those seven mistakes and then uh, get to, to Patricia's question, I think
4: that'll provide a lot more uh, context for folks who have not yet been able to check that out.
3: Yeah, I, I wish I'd have told people to, uh, I wish I'd have told some people off uh, in more blunt terms that's a mistake i wish i'd have made like you don't realize the power of pushback and i kind of touched on pushback and and telling people that you know that's do your job but i wish i had told more leaders to go straight to hell that's that is the mistake and good thing that i wish I'd have done you know like i said it it would have taught me a lot about how how easily pushed off their point most mid level managers are. They're not really that good at their jobs. They're just really good at sounding assertive and sounding like they know what they're talking about. And I wish I had much earlier in my career just said, okay, you're full of it. No, that's not what's happening. We're not going to do that. Here's what's going to happen instead. And that's you know, if I'd have done that. I would have had even more successful projects because a lot of the early mistakes that I made were listening to people because they had a cool title, not because they knew what they were talking about. So that's kind of the one side is I would have learned a lot more through pushback. But the other side is as a leader, there were a couple of moments that I remember where I should have said no. And that's the, Like that's the big takeaway for me. Like I remember uh, laying one person off and I thought I had won a big victory because they had asked me to give them two names. And I said, well, how about if I just close this open position that I have? And, you know, that's one name. And I, I thought like I was winning that battle. In reality, I should have just told them, no, I'm not picking anybody. I need everybody on my team. You want to fire somebody, fire me you know if i had pushed back like that and said no i would have like that would be one thing i would not regret because i look back at that and i was at a company that was profitable making money they they were not hurting for cash in any way shape or form they were in no danger going out of business and they were asking us to lay off people so that they could boost the share price and i should have just pushed back and said no so those you know for those two reasons I wish I had earlier on in my career had a little bit. I don't know about backbone, but you know what I'm saying. I wish I'd have been more articulate. I wish i had have been more, uh, more willing to push back and say, "Look, no, no, that's not working." Because, like I said, I think you know. On the one side, I would have been, I would be happier with myself as an early and mid-career leader than I am looking back now. You know, because there was also a phone call that I made to somebody that was, you know, was on a weekend and he was being asked to come in, but he had family stuff. And I remember my director dragging me into her office and saying, no, you need to call this person and get him to come in. And I should have said, the hell, I will. You want to do it Do it yourself. That should have been, been my response. And that's why, you know, those are the moments I look back on as a leader and say, I was not a good leader. That was bad as a leader, I should have even young pushback. And so that's the, you know, if I had one more story, that would have been the one is tell people to go to hell. You will be so surprised. The majority of people will just look at you for a few seconds. Like you're supposed to be upset and be, you know, contrite and say, you're sorry. And when you don't, when you double down, they will back off because they're wrong and they know it.
13: Thanks for that. One more story. Can I throw in one more follow-up?
0: Yeah, Um, okay.
13: I'm wondering, um, so one of the things that's most compelling um, about the seven career mistakes that you put together is how far past those you've landed. Um, And that's what makes them interesting, right? So anybody on LinkedIn can write about seven mistakes they made. um, And it's not not everybody's seven mistakes are interesting, right? So, do you have thoughts, or or maybe they are,
4: but people don't. Um, or, uh, so so my real the question I'm thinking about, I don't
13: know if I I probably didn't phrase that quite the way the best way, but what I'm thinking about is, do you have a way of thinking about like, is there a certain is there a place that you have to have reached or is or is it like the environment you're in? When do you get to start talking about your mistakes and having those um, land alongside your confidence and your achievements rather than, um, than um, them coming across as, oh, um, this person hasn't achieved?
3: That's really interesting. And I, I'm going to answer that one, but also like I'm looking at the chat and yes, as a guy, Way easier. I have to 100% say this. As a guy, this is easier. And so, I would almost say, if you're a woman and you don't feel like you can do that kind of pushback to your boss, you're in the wrong place. Like if someone pushes back against me, I'm going to listen. I trust my people. I don't. I don't care who it is pushing back on me. If somebody tells me to go to hell, I'm going to think to myself, I must have said something out of line. Because that's, you know, it's a leadership style where you trust your people. And if one of your people says you're out of line, like, you just, whoa, it's time to reset and reevaluate, but that's not, that's not everyone's leadership style. And if you, if you're not in that position, that's a bad, you know, it's a big red flag that you're probably in a more toxic environment than you think you are. It's there's, there are these little things that if you are a woman, if you are somebody who is in one of the disadvantaged groups or underrepresented groups, and you feel like if I told my boss to go to hell, they would just fire me on the spot. But if a guy said that, he'd be cool. You're in a more toxic environment than you think you are. That, that's like your boss should make it a comfortable thing to say that's wrong. You're wrong. We're not going to do this. Your boss should be asking you before making like blanket statements that might be wrong. That should be like step one is your boss asks you for input and then makes a, and this is what happens every once in a while. You can't do that as a leader. So it's not a hundred percent of the time, but I'd say 80, at least there should be a conversation first before this is what must happen. But uh, yeah, I want to acknowledge that there are, yeah, this is a, a, a dudes have this a whole lot easier than women do. But that being said, there's a, that's a red flag. Like you're in a toxic environment if you're worried about that and you shouldn't be, but to answer the question about when can you admit this, you don't realize how much of a power move this is to be, you know, in any spot and say, Oh yeah, I did that wrong. That was, oh, I was so stupid. And so here's what I did, right? Like, that is the power move. You know, I watched, um, I watched somebody was talking to Davos and he was talking about an investment that he had absolutely blundered. And the person who was interviewing him, you know, called him on it and said, yeah, that, you know, that this is one of your biggest stories. he was talking about. How it was the biggest bet for him. And they said, yeah, that's down so much and so much percent. And he goes, yeah, it is. Like power move, you know? Yeah, you're right. And. And that was like, there's so much strength in being wrong. And when somebody tries to get at you by pointing out a time that you were wrong, where you just stop and go, yeah, you're right. There's so much strength in being able to be wrong and to be able to say, oh, yeah, no, I made that mistake. Because now everyone looks at you as human, but also at the same time, you're allowing people at a junior level to be human. It's okay. You know, and that's the, that is the power move of it all is everyone in that room is messed up. Everyone. If you're in a room with a CEO, that CEO has made some pain mistakes. And when you're the only one in the room who says, yeah, no, I did that. Oh yeah. And you own it. Like you are all of a sudden you've gone from where you are now to possibly the strongest personality in the room. Because you just opened yourself up and said, yeah, I've made mistakes. i am imperfect." you said the thing everybody else is afraid to say, but you've also revealed the truth that everyone in that room has failed. And if they haven't, they haven't done anything very interesting. You know, if all you're doing is making cheeseburgers. Yeah, you know, you probably never failed. Good job. But if you're trying to make like the best burger on earth, you've made some really bad ones in the attempt to make that great one. So there's, you know, and there is a difference there. So no, be wrong. Be that person that says, yeah, I failed that one time. Don't list all your failures. (laughs) Like don't, don't go too deep. Don't make yourself look bad. But yeah, from time to time, just acknowledge failure, especially if you see people in the room who are afraid of it, you know, who are worried about admitting that something went wrong. Because that's another sign of toxic cultures. When people are afraid to say, I messed up,
4: be the one that does it first. Thank you. I appreciate that's, you on that. absolutely love that, Ben. It's uh, interesting. like
0: literally, It's just started the third chapter of uh, Adam Grant's book, thinking am listening to it on, on Audible here. And the third chapter is called The Joy of Being Wrong, The Thrill of Not Believing Everything You Think. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to listen to that chapter and kind of tie it back to this discussion. Uh, let's go to Mikito And then after Mikiko, we'll go to uh, Nabi. Nikiko, go for it. And by the way, last call for questions. If you guys got questions, let me know. Uh, I'll add those questions to the queue. Otherwise, we'll wrap up after uh, Nabi here.
6: Yeah, I think there's like three points. Like, I think, so the stories that you see on LinkedIn where they just like go viral, um, where like someone talks about how they you know, they made mistakes and all that. I think there's there's kind of two reasons for that, right? One is because a lot of times it's how they're framing it. So they're not framing it and saying like, yeah, I totally screwed up and I'm a loser. A lot of times they're framing it in a like, this is a situation, this is like what happened. And here's like kind of the learnings that I am providing you, the audience, uh, with that. So I do think like there is a way to like frame that story. And I think that's going to be true no matter what, like whether it's out on public and social media whether it's like in one-on-one interactions um, and all that. And I think in more of like the local conversations, like if you're handling a project and you screw up on, on something, but you don't admit it, that's over time kind of just erodes your relationship with your business partners. But once again, like there is a way to like, have, there is a way to frame it, but in a way that is like, both one, it's positive. Like this is what I learned what I experienced, and this is kind of like my sort of gift to to you. Um, but also like the you know I, I'm a, a earnest person who wants to work with you, who wants to be a partner to you. And I think people are always sort of receptive to that. I feel like as women, we do have to have that conversation in a certain way, and we do have to frame it. And I do think so. For example, like one of my teammates, right you know, she, she's a black woman. Right. And she has a lot of stress and pressures because she does feel that she has to perform at a much higher level than like, say her, than her peers. um, Because the reality is that for the same actions, it might be taken differently. And to Vin's point, right. I think that's also a comment about the environment that someone could be in is that if people don't acknowledge that kind of bias too, that can also kind of lead to like actions being taken the same, like taken differently. Um, You know, something that she does really effectively is she always like, it's the way she frames it in like a learning. And like, for example, when not saying that she's, she's actually even, she hasn't even made any mistakes as far as I've seen, but she's always turned something into like a learning story. And I find that personal, very inspiring. And I feel like whenever I've made a mistake and it's been received okay. It's because I found a way to kind of talk about it, but also to say that this is what I'm going to do differently as a result. So I do think like there's a lot of different factors at play. Like I know for me, I do feel very nervous about talking about my mistakes because I do feel like to a certain degree, it does hit my credibility because I'm a female, especially like when I'm as a female content creator, I feel like I have to be very careful when I say or do certain things, but I I would say that in terms of being authentic and also being unafraid to assert like, hey, I still have value. Like my insight that I gained as a result of this experience can help you, can help other people. I still feel very strongly about that.
4: You know? Thank you. Go to uh, uh, Navi and
11: then Mark you know this is this is a very touchy topic um, because although in theory, I think what Wynn's saying is is great I in in application of it, I don't think we have the same liberties as some of you have um And I've done that quite a few times, you know, the approach of go to hell and no, and I can do it. And there are places where I have done that and been successful. And there are places that I have done that and not been successful. And the number of times I have been successful is far less than the number of times uh, that I've failed. And it has nothing to do with me operating any differently. Simply has to do with whether my boss and his boss had my back, which is why I've had, I've written a few posts about that. You know, when we talk about Judge Jackson's um, uh, hearing, right? Like she's the smartest one in the room, like hands down, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? She needed the Cory Booker. She needed a couple more white guys to say, yeah, she's right. You can't change that room. You know, you can maybe think about, hey, I work in this company and I have my boss's back, but maybe his boss doesn't have your back, and maybe he his hands are tied. You know, I've I've had I've I've been with clients where I've said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. You're it's unrealistic. You're asking me to do something I can't do, and there are times my boss will say, Yeah, I'm right you know, because I'm not just saying it because I, I you know, have a spite or anything. I just can't deliver at the pace that they're asking me to. So in theory, when I would really love for that world to be, but as a woman, as a brown woman, I don't get to say that a lot, which is unfortunate, but, you know, I hope it's better in the next few decades, which is also another reason that I post on LinkedIn a lot um because i want people to know me before they know me you know um yeah so yeah i i agree with you that if you're in a place where you can't say that it's a toxic place and i haven't lasted those places because you know i'm still going to say what i'm going to say and you know so it's uh it's not as black and white as it is for maybe some of you guys who are lucky.
4: Thank so much, Navi, for sharing. Um, Patrice, I saw you're unmuted there, can I chime in before uh, you to Mark, go for it. Oh, I was just saying, thanks, Navi. Uh, Mark, go for it. Mark, you are muted. I am muted. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I was actually gonna talk about the whole manager having your back versus not, but I think
1: Navi said that way better than than I could. Um, regarding that. And just one thing I wanted to, to note, um, though, I can't identify the tr- the struggles of being a woman within the workplace, especially in tech, um, being a black male, there are some, some, uh, or identify as black male, there are some things um, that I can and cannot do. Um, but I think for me, I, re- I, what I really want to highlight is uh, working at my current job at HUMU has been so transformational for me. Because, you know, I've had a lot of that, like, my parents instilling in me, like you have to work two times as hard just to get just <laughs> just enough, right? Or uh and, or even growing up, I experienced a lot of racism uh in high school and stuff like that, where like I was told I wasn't smart enough because color my skin. Things, things like that that really stick with you. Um and so like I've operated in the workplace with those kind of baggage in a way um for that. And so coming to my current role where um psychological safety is like so upheld, not only between me and my manager, but our team and the company as a whole. I've never experienced that before. And the amount of freedom (laughs) that I'm able to experience through this is this is literally the first job I've ever been able to work and just focus on the work and not about the politics and optics of things. And it's absolutely wild. And part of me uh maybe this may be naive, but like I don't want to go back. Like I don't want to like it's, it feels like a hard line for me now. Like I need a manager that supports me and gets this. <laughs> um, and um uh, a big reason why I stay at Humu as well is like is is because of this. Um this is it's, it's so hard to find. And my my concern going into my career is like, can I replicate this um with other jobs? And I actually don't know. Um, because it's just so novel. But it's like now I feel like I just can't go back. Like, I can't
4: imagine going back to a job being scared to say what's really on my mind or give feedback. So it's uh I, I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for
13: sharing those thoughts. I actually had kind of the opposite ex- of experience early in my career. I had the kind of experience you're having now. And it was actually much later that I realized, oh. This is how many different kinds of work environments there are, and this
4: is how rare that actually was. But it's not the only place. There's at least, at least, <laughs> at least a few more out there. Uh, excellent topics. Thanks so much for bringing that up, uh, Patrice. This was a
0: great discussion. Uh, see if there's any final words, final questions. Uh, does not look like it. Y'all, thank you so much for for hanging out. We'll go ahead and start wrapping this up. Um, Definitely appreciate all y'all being here. Um, Great, great episode today. Great conversations. Um, Don't forget to tune in to the the podcast. Have some great episodes released in the last couple of weeks. Uh, This week was with Jeremy Adamson. Talked about leading data science teams and... Uh, week four was with Mixing. Coming up, though, I've got interviews in the next couple of weeks that are pretty cool. Uh, next week is with the uh, gentleman from One Salting, um, uh, J- Jonathan Lee, and um, uh, I think the guy's name, damn it. Uh, but One Salting, best going to be there. Uh, so definitely check that out. Shout out to Makiko for breaking the 1,000 subscribers on her channel. That's crazy. I've been doing my thing for two years and I, I only have 1,000 subscribers. Makiko is not right here doing it. Just <laughs> recently and still crushing it. Uh, great job, Akiko. Um Yeah. So episodes. Uh, the the gentleman from One Salting next week. After that, Dr. Laura Pence. Laura Pence is um, she's from uh, the Spartan race. She's like the the uh, one of the like the chief scientist or whatever. Uh, but it was a great conversation. Enjoyed talking to her. Um, y'all take care. Have a great rest of the weekend. Appreciate y'all being here. I'm about to end this on some Siddhi Musayala music because, you know, rest in peace, Siddhi Musayala. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the music you put out. And uh, thank you so much for all that. Y'all take care. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Rest, rest of the evening. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do some someday?